You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. I'm actually going to start uh, our journey in our passage that I read for us this morning in John 12. Um, So if you wanted to flip to look at that real quick and keep your finger there and then flip back to Luke 11. Um, I want to pray and then we'll start our journey together. Father, we just... Again, thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Um, Lord, I, I just pray today, you, have, you are the one that, that, that does this message. You are the one who allows us to see you. And this is what today is all about. What do you see? Do you see him for who he is? Do you see him for who he truly is? Have you seen yourself for how sinful you are and truly separated you were from him which makes him look so much more glorious for what he did for us. Or this is your aim today and or I pray that in some way I can be used to point people to you so that they may see you because that's what changes us is seeing you for who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we need to go back to, to Palm Sunday where Jesus just had the triumphal entry. And, and as, as all that fanfare went about, they go back and now they're back into a place where they're kind of gathered. And this is where we pick up John 12 and this idea of what the Greeks have come. Like they, they're there and, and they want to see Jesus. We see this in John 12, 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went out and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. We want to see Jesus. Now obviously they've heard about all the different things. They just watched the triumphal entry where people were throwing palm branches. They're singing Hosanna, right? But they want to see Jesus. And the amazing thing is, is what we're going to see is he never really answers them. And, and I know I'll probably say this again, but these Greeks are never talked about again in the rest of the gospel of John. But the reason why I'm saying that and the reason why I'm trying to bring your heart there and the reason why I'm starting here is I hope you are here today expecting the same as these Greeks who went to worship. I hope that you had a good night's sleep, that you prepared your heart, that the, the high point of your week is gathering with your faith family and sitting under the proclaimed word, yes, preaching, which is foolishness to the world around us, anticipating to see Jesus. Anticipating to see Jesus. I, I hope that's what you're saying to yourself as you listen. Where's Jesus? Can I see him more fully today? So in our story here, Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So they went to Jesus and they said, there are some Greeks here and they want to see you. And Jesus said, they want to see me. Yes, that's what we said. They want to see you. Now, Jesus does, as he often does. He just goes off on a different track. 
He says this in verse 23, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, I'm on my way to become infinitely worthy of seeing. I'm on my way to do something that will so add to my glory that, that then I will be for them infinitely worthy of seeing. So these Greeks are coming and they're saying, I, we want to see Jesus. And he's like, yeah, you're going to see me when I die, when I'm glorified. That's when you'll truly see me. Again, these people never show up in this story again. We don't know if they actually got to see Jesus. But they did see him on the cross, I'm sure. They just said, we want to see him. And Jesus starts talking about something else which he does a lot. The hour has come, the Son of Man will be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Of course, he's talking about his death and resurrection. In other words, the way I will become infinitely worthy of being seen, infinitely glorious, is by dying. I'm on the way to my death. And you can tell the Greeks that I'm going to save them by dying and bearing much fruit. So when I have done what they need me to do in dying for them and bearing fruit in Gentiles, for the Gentiles, for the Greeks, and for the Jews, and by the way, for you and me here today, because that's why we're here today, then maybe someday Jesus would say, my final prayer would come true. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He wants you to see him for who he is. He wants you to see him in all his glory. But Jesus is saying, but first I have to finish the glory. Well, Jesus, what, what should we tell them? What should we do? He goes on to say in verses 25 and 26 of John, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In other words, if you want to see me someday, they must go with me. They must hate their life in this world because someday I'm coming out of the grave. And when they hate their life in this world and follow me to the cross, to their own cross, and deny themselves and take up their own cross, then they will rise with me and then they will truly see me. I will then be infinitely worthy of being seen. I will be infinitely worthy of being waited on to be fully seen. Are you on the path to see Jesus like this today? Is this the trajectory of, of your life? Is this your daily pursuit? As we left Jesus last week, he was among a group of people who did not see him, did not see him for who he was. One group was blaming him for some things and the other group was, was questioning him and, and looking for another sign. They did not see him for who he truly is. People who witnessed an exorcism of a man who could not speak, yet they didn't see Jesus. A man that was freed from the slavery of Satan, but yet they did not see because they did not believe. 
They did not see him. We saw their unbelief in the statements of Luke eleven fifteen and 16, if you want to go back to Luke. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. See, last week Jesus addressed the Pharisees, tore apart their argument with logic, reminded us that the divided house falls, and declared that the stronger power, Jesus, has arrived to overthrow the strong man of Satan. Now Jesus is going to address those who are seeking a sign. He didn't forget about them. He first addressed the teachers of the law of Pharisees, and now he addresses those that were seeking a sign. Those who want something more to see, but cannot see because their hearts are darkened. Jesus just flats out says it. He doesn't beat around the bush. He speaks truth. And we see this right here beginning in our passage in verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Jesus, knowing his audience, pulls a few stories from the scripture, from their scripture, which all they had was the Old Testament, our Old Testament. And he starts with Jonah. For many, the story is familiar for those, but there might be some here that it's not. And some of us might get to the watered down, broken down story that, that is told and, and, and applied in many different ways. What is that story of Jonah? What is that sign that he's pointing to? He said, this evil generation, this, this generation that does not see me, he, I've done all these things and I've told you that I've come to forgive sins, that, I, that I've told you several times that I'm going to the cross and, and you will see me. But he calls them an evil generation because they don't believe. What is that story of Jonah? Well, it kind of goes like this. God speaks to a prophet named Jonah. He says, go to Nineveh and call them to repentance because I desire to give them mercy. Right? He's, he, he talks to Jonah. He's like, go to Nineveh. Tell them, that, tell them the gospel message, in, in essence, that I want, I want to give them mercy. And Jonah refuses. Jonah doesn't like his, his task. He, gets in a, he, he buys a, a, a boat ticket to Tarshish. <laughs> He goes the exact opposite way of Nineveh. Why? Well, there's, there's tons of speculation of why, you know, Jonah did this. It, you know, is it a Jew-Gentile thing? Um, is it the Assyrian thing that these part of the Assyrian? There's, there's many arguments to this, but, you know, when you get down and, and you look at actually the root of all the arguments, it, it's really one simple thing. And it's this. Basically, Jonah determined these people did not deserve mercy. That's what he's determined in his heart. That's what he's doing. God said, go and proclaim this message so that I can pour my mercy out on the Ninevites. And he's like, no, they don't deserve it. I'm going the other way. That's what's happening here. So, God judges Jonah for disobedience. 
Many people think, oh, it's being swallowed by a whale. That is the judgment. It's like, no, that's how he saved him. His judgment was the storm that came upon the boat that he was on. Right? And, and all these different men. And, and if, when, you, when you read Jonah, it's quite interesting how these, you know, when, when, and we do this often too, is whenever we're feared and tragedy is about to strike, we get real religious, don't we? <laughs> and whenever you read Jonah, you see all the different people and the way they're different, reaching out to their different gods, this, that, and the other. And when they come to Jonah, Jonah tells them what happens. And, and, and then they believe that he comes from the one true God. And he's like, okay, if you want to be saved, throw me overboard and you'll be saved. So they throw him overboard. That's the judgment. He becomes the sacrifice to save these people. So God saves his prophet. How does he save his prophet? Well, he's now in the middle of the ocean. He gets swallowed by a, a whale. And I know if our scientific and uh, in our 2023 minds, it's like, yeah, right, okay. But if you don't believe this stuff, then you can't believe all the rest of it. It's kind of hard to pick and choose from the Bible and then to hold it all together. But God saves his prophet. So get this. We are in this position all the time. God asks us to do something and maybe it's something we don't want to do because it has, it's giving mercy to somebody else. And, and we don't want to do that. So we go about our business and we turn and then God in his mercy, <laughs> nudges us back. Hopefully he doesn't throw us overboard like he did Jonah, but he nudges us back, doesn't he? And then he even shows us mercy. He shows us even more mercy. Even though we've already judged another group of people, we then receive even more mercy. This is pretty incredible. So the whale spits Jonah upon the dry land, and God speaks to Jonah again. Go to Nineveh. Give him the message. So Jonah goes to Nineveh. The people do repent. Jonah now wants to die. He doesn't like that. See, he knew God's character. He knew that God is a God of mercy and grace. He knew that if he goes and proclaims the message, that these people would turn, and then they would be saved from the from what was coming. And he didn't want that. He didn't want that at all. So now he just wants to die. He even asked the Lord to take his life. Jonah's sitting there depressed because of unforgiveness. He has no room in his heart for forgiving these people for whatever reason why he had in his heart that they should not receive mercy. They should not receive mercy. And the story kind of winds down with, with, with uh, Jonah out of uh, the outskirts, you know, kind of overlooking the city. It seems like the, the picture that paints and it's a hot day and a plant grows and gives him shade so he doesn't die from, you know, from the sun. And then God causes a worm to come and eats the plant. And God teaches Jonah a lesson about his sovereignty through a plant. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much 
cattle. You see what's happening with Jonah? Do you see what happens whenever we don't forgive people? What it does to us? Like here, Jonah is, he's a prophet of God that he's in good with God because God's not, wouldn't be using him. He wouldn't be his prophet, his spokesperson. He's a Jew, obviously, chosen people. But he's determined that these people do not get, deserve mercy. Even though he has been and has received mercy. So many times we, we, we hold people and we won't forgive them because we won't show them mercy. And what we're doing is that we're forgetting to see just how separated we were from God when he showed us mercy. We are not seeing God for who he is and seeing Jesus for what he did. Because we think like, okay, their gap is, is as big as the Grand Canyon, but my gap was only this big. And so I just, there's just a little bit God had to give me mercy for. But no, these people did this to me and, and that gap is as big as the Grand Canyon. No. He's reminding us today. No, we have to give mercy too. And it really, in uh, Keith, Heath Lambert calls this the Jonah Syndrome sometimes, where many people, many churches, um, me included, it says it's like, okay, we've received mercy, but we refuse to go and tell the gospel to others. We're doing the same thing as Jonah. It's, we've been given this mercy, but we won't go and share it with others. So the question is, Within our context today, how is Jesus the sign of Jonah? To the generation he was speaking to and to us today. Well, there's two possible answers. Jesus is the prophet God sends to call them to repentance. Or is it what Matthew says, and Nate alluded to, where Matthew says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what is the sign? Is the sign that, you, that, that Jesus came and, and proclaimed repentance or that he is going to die and be buried three days and rise again? And my, my answer to that, especially within the context of our passage, especially the way he comes back and brings Jonah in again, is yes, it's a both and. It's a both and. Let me just read the other passage from Jonah and you can see where it could both be repentance and also the idea of Jesus being buried, you know, died, buried, and rose again. In Luke 3, 11.32, it says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation to condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So not only have we the allusion to him dying and rising again as a sign of Jonah, but we also have the allusion to, to repentance. Follow my logic. The people just saw a miracle, the exorcism, right? Jesus just, just casted out that demon, and the boy that was mute is, is now talking. And they say, we want to see a sign. Well, obviously, then he's probably thinking in his mind, the sign that he's thinking about is the sign, the fact that I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried for three days and rise again. That's the miraculous sign. So clearly, they are looking for a miraculous sign, and that's probably what Jesus is thinking about. Nothing more miraculous than Jesus going to the cross, dying, going to the tomb for three days, and then rising again. Remember the context in Luke? Jesus has set his course to Jerusalem to the cross. 
Right? We've kind of turned the page in the book of Luke, and now Jesus is heading to the Jerusalem. He's heading to the cross. So I would think that that's what he's also thinking. It's a, it's a both and, not an either or here. So he's saying, you are all going to see a sign, but you won't see it. Isn't that amazing? That, that sometimes we think, like, we need to see that sign to, to believe, like, those that were there that saw Jesus on the cross and then saw him later still didn't believe. Pretty miraculous. Showing us God's sovereignty. Showing us that he's the one that opens our eyes. He's the one that allows us to see. Jesus says, your hearts are darkened because you do not see to these people. You will be judged by the men of Nineveh because they repented and you have not. It's like, you've seen all I've done. I I am the Messiah, but you refuse to believe. You refuse to believe. So the sign, I believe, is a both in and not an either or. The sign is the death and burial resurrection and the sign is a prophet calling people to repent and believe. That is what the Ninevites did. They repented and believed God. That's what they did. That's the sign. It says Jonah three, in Jonah 3, 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. They believed the prophet. Where these people were not believing the prophet. As Jesus came to say, I am the Messiah Believe in me. Jesus is saying this evil generation will be judged because you do not believe God. Standing before you today is something greater than Jonah. God has given us the same sign. You may ask yourself, as you hear preaching, as you read your word, as you do Bible studies, you may ask these questions of the Bible and the word and what God has said. What has God done to point us to the truth of the gospel? How do we know that Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf? How do we know for sure that God has accepted Christ's sacrifice for our sins? How do we know that Jesus has the power of eternal life? How do we know that we will live forever? We have a sign. The answer is, in each case, is that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's in the resurrection. It's our Easter celebration. That's how we know all these things. Because Jesus rose again. We are like the people of Nineveh. We are like the people of Jesus' generation. We deserve judgment rather than mercy. And the greater prophet has come, unlike Jonah. He came not in anger, but full of compassion. See, Jonah went and told his story, but you know there had to be a little bit of edge to Jonah, right? He's like, okay, I'm going to tell you what God said so I don't get thrown over to sea again, but there had to be a little bit of edge to it. But no, Jesus comes with open arms, full of compassion. We've seen that many times as he's inviting in the, the sinners, those that are cast out, as he's touching those that are deemed unclean. He comes not grumpy and angry, He comes with full of compassion. Jesus is not done referring them back to the Old Testament, to another story from Scripture, and says, not only am I greater than Jonah, but I'm greater than Solomon. 
Luke 11.31 says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. So he's, he's using this Old Testament story to say that these people are going to judge you. Because, see, they saw something, they see it, and then they responded, they acted to it. And that, and that kind of ties in these two passages of John 12 and here. Because, see, the, the Greeks came and they said, we want to see Jesus. Jesus said, well, you're going to see me because I'm going to go and die and rise again. And you will see me fully for who I am in all my glory. And oh, by the way, how are you going to get there? You're going to do some things. And so Jesus pulls out this passage. He, he pulls out this story from the Old Testament. And what he says, he says, let me show you someone that did some things because of what they believed and what they saw. That the queen of the south will rise up judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He is driving home the point of unbelief. They do not see Jesus. King Solomon was and still is a world renowned for his extravagant wealth and his extraordinary knowledge. That's who Solomon is. That's who he was. An African queen had heard about his famous, this famous king, and she wanted to see for herself. I want to see if what I've heard is true. So she traveled from Africa to Israel with a caravan of treasure. There she tested the king's wisdom, toured the treasuries in the king's palace, and worshipped in the temple that he built for God. What she saw and heard took her breath away. She said to King Solomon, I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, it was greater than what I heard. What I saw was so much greater than what I heard. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the reports that I heard. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on a throne of Israel. That's First Kings 10 Right around in there is where I pulled all that from. So here is a woman who desperately wanted to know the truth. She went to great trouble and expense to find out if what she had heard was really true. Luke tells us she came from the ends of the earth to hear wisdom of Solomon. And because she was seeking the truth sincerely, she found what she was looking for. What a contrast to the people in the time of Christ. They were in the presence of someone even greater than King Solomon, Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom incarnate and who reigns as the King of Kings. As great as Solomon was in wealth and wisdom, Jesus is infinitely greater. In, in all human, uh, humility, he did not hesitate to say this. Right? His kingdom spans the globe. His riches are splendors of the universe. And in Colossians we read, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is greater than Solomon. He has more wisdom than Solomon. Do you see him as that today? What will the queen of Sheba say about us? Because see, Jesus is saying that that person is going to judge that generation that Jesus talks about. But how would she judge us? Could she judge us? Can she judge us? Have you taken the trouble to study these things 
and know them to be sure? Are you willing to seek after Jesus until we find our salvation in him? Have we truly seen Jesus? And maybe by now you wonder why I keep going back to this question because this is where Jesus goes in his discussion with these people. Have you seen him for who he truly is? We pick this up in verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So Jesus says, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Jonah is here. That is, the wisdom of Jesus exceeds the greatest human wisdom. And the resurrection of Jesus will be greater than any uh, resuscitation or rescue that any human can come up with. The question Jesus then addresses is this. Do you see this for what it is? Magnificent and compelling, so that it becomes the light and joy of our lives. Do you see that? Do you see him for who he is, that he is greater than Jonah, that he's greater than Solomon, that, that he is worthy of giving your entire life to? And as we do that, that fills our life with light and joy when we see him for who he truly is. So Jesus talks about seeing here. And he talks about two lamps. The first lamp we read in verse 33, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. I take this to refer to what Jesus has just said about his wisdom and his resurrection. I have set a lamp in the world, my wise and powerful presence, greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah. If you have seen the light, are you going to put it under a lamp and cover it? Because he is the light of the world. John 8, 12 says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 9, 5 says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Have you seen him as the light? If he is truly the light, we wouldn't cover him up. And we do so by sin. That's how we quench the spirit, and that's how we blind our own eyes. And there's only one imperative in this whole passage, and it's be careful. Be careful not to darken what you see. Be careful. I am the lamp that must not be hidden or missed. He then speaks of a second lamp in, in verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. I take this to mean that the way the lamp of Jesus becomes a lamp for you is that you see it for what it really is. You see it for who he really is. You see what he has truly done for you. 
Your eye becomes the lamp of your body when you see the lamp of the greatness of Jesus. He elaborates. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. In other words, if your eye sees me for who I really am, then you are full of light. But if you don't see me for who I am, then you are full of darkness. This is what Jesus is saying to us. When Jesus says seeing, he is referring to more than with our physical eyes, of course. He's always talking about our spiritual life. We do see God with our natural eyes. Like when we go up and, and we know that the, the, the Psalms talk about this, when we go outside and we see his glory on display in creation, we do see with our physical eyes. When we open up the word of God and we're reading his words to us, we see him with our physical eyes. But seeing Jesus is referring to here, I think even more so is the eyes of our heart, so to speak. Our spiritual eyes, if you will. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope in which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Or, or maybe another way of saying it is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do we see him with those eyes? And the only way that we can see him with those eyes is if we've been born again. If that veil has been taken away. And what is it we are to see? We are to see his glory. This is what people of Jesus' generation missed. Even after he went to the cross and was glorified, they missed it. This is what we see, the glory of Christ on the cross in our place. That's the glory that we see. This is why we need to see our sin. Because until we understand how big that gap was, truly, and to understand just how forgiven we are, and just to, to, to know that all of our guilt is taken away, all our shame is taken away, all our fear is taken away, then we truly don't see Christ for who he truly is and what he has truly done for us. Now, we know that that happens. It's, it's what actually what Sam's preaching about today down at Second Baptist. It's called sanctification. And that part of sanctification, of putting off the old self and putting on the new, is how we see progressively more and more of what Christ has done for us. And it's a both-and effect. As we see here, and also if we read Philippians 2.13, we see that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but it is God who works underneath of all that. And here we're, we're in 2 Corinthians where um, Paul says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, he's changing us from one glory to another and allowing us to see who Jesus is from one glory to another. That is the glory that we see. The glory of Christ on the cross in our place. That's why we need to see sin each week. It's pretty amazing, like, how God has designed this. So he calls us to gather together, and, and he calls a particular person to open up his word and to think through how 
how it um, applies to our lives and, and to try to point out how we, we are amiss so that we see our sin, so that then we can see his glory. And then when we see his glory, he changes us so that therefore we don't sin anymore. It's pretty remarkable. But you know, if we come in each and every week and we don't participate in God's plan, then man, we can become dry and depressed and full of anxiety. There's something greater. Greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah. And he came and he saved you if you are his today. See his glory. It is full of light. He gives this warning. Then Jesus says, therefore be careful lest the light in you be darkness. In other words, there is much that passes for light through the eye that is not light. There's many bright things in the world that keep us from seeing the true light of Christ. Uh, just like many Dion's, you know, um, I know Charity and I, we talk about this all the time. There is a place here on the East Coast that's the best. It's up there in the, in, the, in the mountains of Pennsylvania where it is the best place to see the most amount of stars on the East Coast because it has the least amount of light from anywhere. And that's what Jesus is referring to here, that that just like we look up here in Frostburg and with all the city lights, and we do see some stars, but there's so much more out there. And sometimes we allow other lights to blind the true glory of Christ. He says, be careful. Again, I know I've said it multiple times. This is the only imperative in the text. Be careful what you see. Be careful what you regard as bright and attractive and compelling. It is, if it is not Christ, you will be filled with darkness, no matter how bright it seems for a season. And that's how much sin and idols work. They seem bright and wonderful for a season, and then they fall short, as they always do. But Christ will never fall short. Candles seem bright until the sun comes out, don't they? Then they're useless and put away. Be careful. This is the command. What keeps our hearts darkened or dimmed? I just wrote down a couple as we finish up here. This idea of prejudice. In other words, saying that I have what I need. I got it, God. I really don't need you day in and day out. I just need you for this big thing called salvation. And I'll go and live however I want. I have what I need. I'm good. No. That will darken our hearts, right? Slothfulness or, or being lazy. The, too much trouble to read the word or to think or to search the scriptures or to participate in, in, in being with my brothers and sisters in Christ or to think hard about what the word of God says and what he has done. That will darken the light. The love of sin, which I've already touched on. We cannot see the truth because we love the lie that Satan has put before us. Right? Did God really say that? Did God really say, as, as he said in John, that, that I need to give my life to Christ and I will be better off for it? Yes. But we believed a lie. Did God really say that? And we worship the created stuff. We think that stuff is much better. And then obviously the one that kind of encompasses it all is pride. He who is taken up with the conceit of his own righteousness will never see the righteousness of Christ. This is why we need to see the gap. 
Because what we're doing is we're putting in our own righteousness in there. Because we think the gap is only this big whenever it's this big. And what we're filling the gap with is our own righteousness by saying, but I'm not quite as bad as that person, and I know I'm not as bad as that person, and I'm definitely not as bad as that person. And we insert our own righteousness. No, we need to insert one thing and one thing only, and that's Christ's righteousness. Because that's the only thing. That's the only thing that gives us eternal life, and that is the only thing that brings us back into a relationship with God. Again, if if you need no help, then God is no use to you. He just isn't. We are by nature a lantern with the candle blown out until the gospel is proclaimed and like a rushing wind, God fans into flame our desires for him by giving us a new heart and a new nature. We won't see him for who he truly is. So my question's, To you today as we finish up, have you seen the greater Jonah? Have you seen him for who he is? Have you seen him that that he lived and died and rose again for you? Have you seen the greater Solomon that all the wisdom, all the the knowledge is, is rested in him? His light alone will fill us and give the light of life and meaning to every part of our lives. And when that happens... We ourselves will shine and give off the rays of Christ. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. We close with the imperative. Be careful what you see today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Or I just pray today that, that we see you for who you are and all that you have done. You have lavished mercy and grace on each one of us. You have saved us and brought us into your family where we can cry out, Abba, Father. Where we can come to you as Daddy as one who deeply cares for us. We don't have to earn this. It's been freely given as a gift. You care that much for us. Lord, I pray that we see you for who you are. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that does not see you like this, that today maybe is the day that you would change their hearts and give them eyes to see Jesus, our Savior. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.